Let us hear God's word from Romans chapter 12, found on page 920 on our church Bibles. So Romans chapter 12, a living sacrifice. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Humble service in the body of Christ. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love in action. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written... It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll help heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. May God grant us an understanding of this reading. Father God, thank you for your church. 
Lord, we thank you for the gathering of your people around your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today through Romans 12. And Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts more into the likeness of your son. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We may have heard uh, the old expression, don't put the cart before the horse. Uh, It's a well-known figure of speech. Uh, It implies that there is a correct or a normal order in which things should be done for them to work properly. Uh, It's very similar to the phrase, uh, to run before you can walk, basically trying to do something before you have learned the basic skills to be able to do it in the first place. Uh, For life, uh, in many ways, if you do things in the wrong order, then they will turn out very badly for you. Uh, If you were to wake up, for example, this morning, uh, and decide to put your pants on before your undies, then you're either going to turn out to be Superman or just a crazy person. Or if you put the lid on the blender after you've made your smoothie, you get the idea. Doing things in the wrong order, uh, they can sometimes turn out very badly. Now, this is also true in the case of the Christian life. If you try to live a righteous life, for example, before you've understood the gospel, you'll end up with the gospel with the undies on the outside. Now, the reason this matters is because every other world religion and culture does this. They tell you to earn your place in the world. They tell you to earn your place in heaven through your efforts, to do a whole bunch of good stuff in the hopes that the good will hopefully outweigh the failures. In fact, it's so ingrained in modern culture that even the overriding Christmas tradition bends the same way. You know, you've you've got to be on the nice list, not the naughty one, because it's your performance that really matters. The problem is that's not the gospel. The good news of Christianity is that we have received righteousness, not earned it in any way. And the danger of putting the cart before the horse is that all of our actions to please God, if we do this, if if we're trying to earn our way in, well, they come from a place that isn't gospel-centred. They come from a place of fear or even pride, a place of insecurity as we try to earn favour with our Heavenly Father, or perhaps even a place of pride as we think we deserve to march triumphantly into heaven on our own merits. That's not the gospel. In fact, I would go so far as to say that that is an evil and twisted religion. It's not the good news. And to really hit this point home, uh, Paul, he has spent 11 huge chapters in Romans explaining this, explaining that you can't earn God's favour, showing you where you were before he gave you grace, that you were more wicked and evil than you can possibly imagine, and that we have a habit, a nasty habit, of suppressing the truth about God. But the good news is that God in his love, well, what does he do? He supplies us with a righteousness that isn't ours. We didn't earn this righteousness. We didn't create it. We didn't make it. We didn't even fake it. We didn't twist God's arm into giving us righteousness through our actions or our holy living or anything like that. He simply gave it to us. Here you go, righteousness, through faith in Jesus. And so at the end of the day, If you think or act in a way that suggests that you can earn God's favour, or maybe 
perhaps you know, water it down a little bit and just seal the deal through your own actions, then I've got news for you. You've got your undies on the outside. Paul lays it all out for us. He says at the beginning of chapter 12, if you read with me, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, hear this, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's in view of God's mercy, everything that's been laid out in the last 11 chapters. It's in view of God's mercy that we offer our lives in service to God, not the other way around. We don't offer ourselves in service to him to somehow gain his mercy. Like I said, that's every other religion on the planet. No, the Christian life is motivated at its core by God's mercy, which has already been given. It's already been poured out on us. This is past tense through Christ alone. In fact, I would go so far as to say that our assurance, right, this, this doctrine, what we call the doctrine of assurance, is absolutely critical to joyously living a life motivated by God and his mercy here in chapter 12. So let me give you a quick example. If you flick back to Romans 8, there's that really famous section right at the end. And Paul says this. He says, Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present and get this, nor even the future. That's a big one. Nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, and here's the real clincher, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's a hot take, but you're part of creation. Paul is saying that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. He's saying your salvation, it is 100% secured. Why? Because Christ's sacrifice was 100% sufficient. Not 99, not 99.8 or anything else. It was 100% sufficient. It is finished. The work is done. So to even begin understanding uh, all the calls to Christian living in Romans 12 today, you have to understand that. You have to understand that the gospel is one of received, complete, finished righteousness. That the Christian life is motivated by God's mercy. You see, if you haven't understood this, if, if this isn't really granted to you, then what you'll see in chapter 12, as it was read today or as you read it again, what you'll see is a bunch of rules, a bunch of burdensome rules perhaps. And I guarantee that if you try to live all the things that are listed here without having understood the gospel, you'll be driven into the ground. You'll be motivated by perhaps a fear. And what will ultimately happen is you, your faith will get shipwrecked in this burden for having to try and perform. It's like if, if you're a child or you have a child in school um, and they're trying to win their parents' approval, for some reason they just are craving their parents' approval, then everything that they do is kind of ultimately motivated by fear. Uh, if there's an exam and they think that their parents' uh, love will perhaps change depending on their results, then all their efforts in that exam will be motivated by a place of insecurity. But if they sit the exam and they know their parents will love them fully and wholly, regardless of the result, all their efforts come from a place of security. It doesn't matter whether they succeed or not because they know that their efforts don't change the fact that they're already loved by their parents. You see, it's only in view of God's mercy, knowing that we are loved by him, that we are able then to offer ourselves 
adds living sacrifices in service to him wholeheartedly, without fear, without doubts. God's mercy, in other words, is at the front and centre of all that we do as Christians. And the reason I'm repeating this over and over again is because I think this is an area in the Christian life that we are so prone to forgetting. Now, it's all good and well to say, uh, live in light of God's mercy. Uh, Naturally, we need to ask, well, what do we do then? How do we live in light? And how exactly do we do it? It feels like a bit of an insurmountable thing in front of us to climb. And the problem is that it can't just be theoretical head knowledge, uh, because that's about as useful as knowing that saturated fats are bad for you while diving your hand back into that bucket of chicken. Knowing about something is very different to knowing how and what to do about that something. And here in Romans 12, a knowledge of God's mercy has to ground itself somewhere in the Christian life. So what exactly uh, should we do? Well, Paul, he answers this in the first verse of chapter 12. He says, what we're to do in light of God's mercy is offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's a bit of a strange turn of phrase. Has anyone ever said to you that they're they're a living sacrifice? It almost feels contradictory, a strange expression where a sacrifice traditionally involves the killing of something, but this is like a living killing. Like, how does it all fit together? Well, basically, it means that our bodies, the physical bodies that God has given us and our minds and everything with it, they're to be offered up in service to God. It's pretty straightforward. Now, the reason this is striking or should be striking is because if you read the letter in one big sweep, you probably have noticed that way, way, way back in chapter 3, Paul reminds us of some of the things that we used to do with our bodies. I'll throw them up on the screen here. He says, Our throats, they were open graves. Our tongues practiced deceit. The poison of vipers was on our lips. Our mouths were full of cursing and bitterness. Our feet were swift to shed blood. Our bodies, in other words, were used to commit horrendous acts of evil. But now, in view of God's mercy, we're to use our bodies as instruments of righteousness. We're kind of to flip that on its head. And Paul goes on to say that that really, when you think about this, this is the only rational response to what we've received from God. So at the end of verse 1, Paul says, Uh, In the NIV, we had read it this morning even. This is our true and proper worship. Uh, Some of your translations might say our, our rational worship. In a nutshell, this is Paul saying that the only thing that makes sense for you to do, if you understand the gospel, in light of what he has done, is to offer yourselves completely to him. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, gee, this is a really hard teaching... How do I do that? You know, I I enjoy my life so much. I have my own hobbies. I have my own passions. You know, I love spending money on the things that I like. I love spending my time doing things that make me happy. Are you asking me to kind of crush my individual personality? Perhaps some would even say, well, look, I've I've got to put a bit of self-care into there. You know, I've got to look after myself. The problem is that if self-care turns into self obsession, then things start falling apart. Uh, Post-COVID, here at KPC and and among many other churches, 
uh, we lost a lot of members. And during this time, there was one person who said to me, and this is not from KPC, this is from another church, uh, they said to me, I don't go to church anymore, and I've suddenly rediscovered Sunday mornings. And he was so happy and joyous as if this was such a fantastic thing. Now, before you think I'm judging too quickly, and before you judge too quickly, when push comes to shove, I think all of us actually struggle with that idea and that thought. Wouldn't it be nice to spend a bit more time with the family? You know, free up part of our weekend. I mean, we only get one day if we have church on Sundays. I think we all struggle with the idea that, that we should be offering ourselves completely to God, especially if it requires our time, our money, our efforts, every fibre of our being. I think all of us hear this and we think these words in, in Romans 12 sound a little bit radical, hard to accept. And if you're thinking that, it's because, well, it kind of is. It's certainly not a simple request to just give everything over to God. But if this is you, if you're worried about this, then I have some good news for you. You see, Paul knows that offering our bodies as instruments of righteousness is extreme. He knows that it requires, the word he uses here is a transformation, right? Something that that radically turns you inside out in verse 2. A transformation, he says, by the renewal of your mind. And he offers the solution. He says the way we can be transformed is by filling our minds with the truth of the gospel, the truth about Christ. It's it's a very, very important thing. It sounds so simple to be constantly thinking through this stuff. Um, But this is what we do with anything. So if if you do have a passion or a hobby, something that you love, might have been soccer in the last couple of weeks, might have hated soccer in the last couple of weeks. You might have a passion for music. Or if you're my daughter, you have a passion for collecting live spiders, whatever it might be. If you have a passion for something, you'll know that you've spent far too much time uh, researching it, reading it, obsessing over it, imagining things about it. You may have spent lots of time on YouTube soaking in everything you can about the subject that you enjoy. And Paul's saying that the Christian life, well, it requires this kind of mind transformation where we actually want to read, we want to enjoy, we want to be passionate about all things Christ-related. Now, the reality is we're not going to be perfect at this, uh, far from it. As you know, in Romans, there is a battle that's waging war in our minds and our bodies. Even if the, the war itself really has been won, there's still stuff going on. But I think the overarching implication here is that we should be doing all that we can to feed our minds on the amazing things God has done for us in Jesus. Obsessing over his amazing grace. Obsessing over his steadfast faithfulness, even though we are so unfaithful. And here in chapter 12, obsessing over his rich mercy towards us. You see, if we're constantly filling our minds with the wonders of God's love and his mercy... What this naturally does is it feeds our hearts and and it keeps us from blurring the lines. It'll keep us from conforming to the pattern of this world as we see in the text. We won't be influenced by the world as easily or as much. And Paul says that by doing this, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. 
Now, when you hear things about God's will in the Bible, I know a lot of people obsess over, well, is, is it God's will that you know, I take this job or that I marry this person or not? Is, is it God's will that I drink good coffee instead of the cheap 7-Eleven stuff? I don't know. It's not saying that we're going to have some kind of mystical insight into difficult decisions in life like that. But what it is saying is that by the renewal of our minds, we should almost instinctively understand how we can please God in any given situation. That's verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Well done. You've made it through the first teeny little bit. If you think, oh dear, another 19 verses to go, you're absolutely right. Strap yourselves in, everyone. We're going for a big ride this morning. Steve's not here. I've got free reign of the the mic. Just kidding. No, the good news is that if you you stayed with me so far, the heavy lifting's actually been done for the passage. Right, well done, everyone. The rest of chapter 12, what it unpacks is the implications of these first two verses, which I've summarised. If you have your outlines there, they're summarised as God's mercy changes the way we think about ourselves and it changes the way we think about others. And this is where we're going to, to come to land the sermon. We're going to be picking up the pace from here. Uh, having a look at a couple of the examples from the many, many things we see in Romans 12 of what it looks like to live and be transformed by God's mercy. That is how putting the horse before the cart, right, putting the undies on the inside, doing things in the correct order, actually fuels our genuine service for God. So verse 3, we read, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Uh, This verse, got up there, this verse, it functions as Paul's preface to all the stuff about gifts. You would have read all the gifts of service, the gift of giving, the gift of leading, all that kind of stuff later on. Uh, This is the preface to that. Paul says the first thing to understanding your place in God's mercy is not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. And this is especially the case when it comes to gifts. Now, to be clear, the church does have different giftings. All members have their different gifts. We're not just to be a bunch of zombies or a bunch of clones. We're not all exactly the same with kind of the hive mind going on. No, God has given us all different temperaments. He's given us all different skills, different life experiences, and all these things have shaped us. And so when God distributes gifts... It's very easy for us, because of our differences, to fall into the trap of pride. To think that my particular gifts make me better than the person sitting next to me. It's all too easy for for a God-given gift to kind of mutate itself into a badge of honour. You know, when you walk around and go, well, I got this gift and it's way better than that one over there. Somehow thinking that, that you're more special than the people around you. Now, Paul himself, he's very aware of this pitfall. Uh, If you were at night church earlier this year, you know we went through 1 Corinthians. And one of the big problems there is you have this guy called Apollos who's super gifted. He's very charismatic. Uh, Compared to Paul especially, Paul's words were were weak and unimpressive is what the Corinthians said about him. Uh, Both of them together were also compared to the apostle Peter. There were constant things going on. Well, who's the better of? Who should we follow? How do we do all this? And to cut a long story short, factions began forming in the Corinthian church on the basis of these gifts and the roles and the functions that these people had, not realizing that they're all part of the same body. And here in Romans 12, while Paul's reminding us, he's saying, no, 
don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. In fact, you should put the pin in that idea right now and think of yourself, the words he uses, is with sober judgment. Literally means clear-headedness. It's exactly what you think it means. Well, not to think that we're, we're somehow God's indispensable weapon. You know, that if, if Steve goes or I goes or whatever else, well, there goes the church or anything like that. No, none of this makes us more valuable than the person next to us. In fact, the church needs every single one of you. You see, the person that faithfully sweeps this floor or vacuums each week, I'm not sure if you even notice these people, but they are just as valuable in our church as anyone else. You're not to think more highly of yourself than you ought, because it's only in God's mercy that you are who you are. And when we understand this, if we see our giftings, it leaves us to joyously serve the church, and instead of compete, we actually work together to build the church up. And in light of the gospel, it enables us to do this with true humility. So God's mercy, it, it changes the way we think about ourselves. And finally, on your outlines, God's mercy, it changes the way we think about one another. So if we think through these final verses, if you look at kind of verses 9 to the end there, 9 to 21, um, you'd see a whole bunch of things Paul commands us to do in light of God's mercy. And the big overarching theme that strings through this, which is in that NIV heading, is love. But not just any love. It's not a love that, that seeks recognition. It's not a love that seeks reward. This is a humble love in response to God's incredible love and mercy towards us. If you think back to Romans 5, we talked about God's love being poured out in our hearts. That while we were God's enemies, well, Christ, God loved us in Christ anyway and saved us. And so when you see all this stuff at the end about loving your enemies, you realize, well, that was us before God. And now he's saying, go on out and do likewise. And so I think here there's, there's no better way to finish up uh, the sermon than to simply hear God's word, to meditate on what a life shaped by his mercy looks like for us here at Kenmore Presbyterian Church. And so starting at verse 9, I want us to hear these words and think about what God is saying to you and what God is saying to us as a church. Verse 9. Love must be sincere. Literally, it says unhypocritically. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never lacking zeal, but keeping spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your deep and great mercy towards us. Lord, help us to live in light of this truth, using our gifts and the love you've demonstrated so clearly to us, to build your church, to love our enemies, and to live in a way that reflects a genuine understanding of your mercy, your gospel in our lives. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.